Thank you so much, worship team. Chris, as I understand, that's a song you wrote, isn't it, that last one? Yeah, what a beautiful song. Beautifully, yeah, why don't we, uh, we can praise God together for that. Oh, I'm so glad uh, to be back with you. Go ahead and have a seat. Had a chance to uh, spend last week in Boone, North Carolina. Anybody been to Boone before? Yeah, many of you have. We had a great time uh, hiking and kayaking and putting some puzzles together. I had no idea that, that Boone was such a hipster paradise, though. Uh, I've never seen so many bicycles, beards, skinny jeans, um, and even scarves, right? It was 85 degrees, but uh, apparently a lot of people's necks were cold because there were a lot of scarves. Uh, but uh, we had a great time. Uh, loved, loved the city of Boone and some of the restaurants and things uh, to do there. And um, even, but even though I'm glad to be home, and I think you know you're, that a place is starting to feel like home when you're away and you can't wait to get back. And uh, that's the way I felt and so good this morning, even to look out and see you and so many people that I'm uh, getting to know and love. Um, I did have a chance to watch uh, last week's sermon online and was so edified by the, the music worship, which I thought was so we, uh, so um, edifying and rich. And um, Pastor Adam preached such a powerful sermon. Wow, what a, what a beautiful uh, exaltation of Christ. If you haven't had a chance to, uh, to hear that or to watch that, you can go back and listen to that online uh, at our newly revamped website, cabshaw.org. So I encourage you to do that if you weren't around last week. Uh, this morning, we're continuing in our series through 1 Timothy. We're working our way through this, uh, this epistle, this letter by the Apostle Paul, and a series that I've called The Good Confession. So let's pray. And we'll get into the text. Father, we uh, thank you so much for the gifts that you've given your people. I'm thankful, Lord, that I was able to be edified even up in the mountains by uh, this, this beautiful proclamation of Christ through 1 Timothy by Pastor Adam. Thank you for him and uh, for uh, just this uh, incredible staff here at Capshaw. So blessed by them and uh, our music leadership with Pastor Chris and, and so many others. Lord, thank you that... You have put us together with all of our gifts and abilities and also our foibles and our weaknesses and our shortcomings, and you've called us to live together as one body. And Lord, we're grateful for it, and we ask for your grace in it. Pray this morning as we open up your scriptures, your word, Lord, that you would help us to uh, see what you want us to see and respond in a way that brings you pleasure and honor. And Lord, I pray that you administer to us, Lord, in just a, a powerful way by your Spirit. Uh, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So if you have your Bible, uh, turn with me to 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1. A few years ago, I was asked to speak at a men's retreat at a uh, way up in the mountains of uh, or the, the tall trees of Northern California. And it was a beautiful place. I had never been there before. And when I was asked to speak, I wasn't really sure what to talk about exactly. You know, what do you say to a group of men that you don't really know, didn't know any of these men? And so I, I really wrestled with how am I going to go about uh, saying something that, that really resonates with them, that's meaningful to them. So I spent a lot of time uh, praying about it, asking God for wisdom. God, what can I say to these men that, that, I, that I have no relationship with? And, and I decided after some prayer that what I would do is just try to, to do one thing. I had four I was given four 45-minute uh, sessions, but I just wanted to accomplish one thing over that men's retreat, and I wanted to help these men see Jesus differently. Uh, because I had been 
persuaded over time at that point in my ministry that, um, that many people, especially men, have this idea of Jesus that doesn't really come from the scriptures and, and as such it, it dulls their affection for him. Because they have an idea of Jesus that really doesn't mesh with his own example in Scripture. Now, a lot of people have ideas of who Jesus is. Uh, most people tend to think that Jesus was always nice. That he would never laugh. He was too serious for that. He certainly never got frustrated. That he was always genteel and accommodating. And above all, he was always polite. So a lot of people have this idea of Jesus that, that above all, he was... That if you were to pick one word to describe him, it would have to be polite. But this soft-spoken, sort of uber-polite Jesus that so many people think of is not the Jesus we see in the Gospels. There we find a Jesus who's certainly loving and gracious and merciful and kind and, and, and undoubtedly all of those things. But also a Jesus who gets angry and is not afraid to show it. A Jesus who turned people away. A Jesus who's so radical with, with his statements that even his closest followers at one time say, this guy's lost it. Why would he say these things? One time they say, doesn't he realize he's offending the religious people? He's offending people. Many people fail to see a Jesus that often is stern and sometimes gets very frustrated even with those closest to himself. Seems that we don't know much of that Jesus. And in fact, I wonder sometimes if that Jesus doesn't scare us a little bit. Like, what are we going to do with that Jesus? And as a result of our misguided notions about Jesus, what we extrapolate from that often is, is that as Jesus' followers, we should be above all else, we should be nice. Really, the, the, the essential element of the Christ follower is that he or she is always nice. I was reading in, in preparation for this men's retreat, I came across uh, Mark Galley, who was a, he may still be the editor of Christianity Today, but I know he was at one point, and he has a book called Jesus Mean and Wild, and in this book he says, today we are adherents of a religion of niceness. Thus we learn not to make a fuss in school, at work, in life. We quickly discover that people respond positively to us when we're nice to them, and negatively, when we aren't, since it feels good to be liked, we get addicted to being nice. Now, certainly, this is not a message on how to not be nice, okay? I'm not going to tell you you shouldn't be nice, so please don't go out of here and, and treat someone like a jerk and say, my pastor told, you to, told me to treat you like this. I'm not saying we shouldn't be nice. I'm not saying we shouldn't be kind. Of course, we should be kind. We see in the scriptures, we're called to be compassionate and gracious, merciful, loving, among other things, but sometimes, sometimes we have to be direct. Sometimes we have to be stern. Sometimes we have to say things that hurt. Sometimes we're actually called to wage war. To wage war. For God's glory, the purity of the church, the good of our brothers and sisters in Christ, sometimes we're called to actually fight. Now, I hate talking about this. I'm, I'm dead serious. I hate talking about this because I think too many Christians need no motivation to fight. I mean, I think so many Christians are fighting about so many things. Our personal preferences, politics, our, 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 our hobbies, our hot buttons, whatever it is. We're, we're so eager to fight over these things that I really hate to talk about this in many respects. 
But what I'm talking about this morning when I say that we're supposed to fight, I'm not talking about fighting against our neighbors. I'm not talking about fighting against other Christians. I'm not talking about fighting for our preferences. I'm talking about fighting against something else. And we're going to see what, it, what that is this morning. I want to do three things this morning. We'll look at what we're called to fight against. So what are we fighting against? How are we supposed to fight? And what happens when we fail to fight? 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. A very small section, but there's a lot in here. It reads this way. Paul says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So again, we're continuing this letter uh, to Timothy, written by the Apostle Paul. Timothy was Paul's true son in the faith, his protege, his travel companion. And yet, it's also written to us uh, by extension, those who would be followers of Christ in perpetuity. And at the beginning, Paul issues a command. It was a charge given to Timothy to wage spiritual warfare, to wage warfare by the prophecies that had been made about him. So at some point in, in, in Timothy's life, a group of leaders, elders, gathered around him. They laid hands on him. They prayed for him. You can read about this later in 1 Timothy chapter 4. And, and they, they prophesied about him. And they appointed him to be a, a, a gospel messenger, a leader in the church. As we've already seen at this church at Ephesus where, where Paul left Timothy, there were some false teachers and, and teachers who had come in and they were distracting people with these things about uh, mythology and genealogies and, and they were abusing the law and so they were, they were leading people astray. And Paul says to Timothy, I'm, I'm leaving you there to set things in order to make sure that you, you restore order in terms of theological purity. And in this, uh, Paul calls Timothy to wage the good warfare, to fight, really. Well, what is he talking about? In light of everything else that Paul has said in this letter so far, Paul's talking about fighting for sound theology. He's talking about fighting for proper doctrine. He's talking about fighting for a correct view of God. Here's our first point this morning. Our fight is against false views of God misleading caricatures of God and his salvation that we're all prone to believing. This is what we're called to fight against. Timothy and all those who would be followers of Jesus, we wage war against this erroneous view of God. Any sort of false teaching of God, any sort of false representation of the God of the Bible, any sort of false teaching about God's salvation, any false gospel, we're called to wage war against those things. The kind that can easily infiltrate the church. And I think the kind that can also permeate our own hearts. I say that we're all prone to believing false things about God. Because one consequence of being fleshly creatures. You know, those who, who live in these unglorified bodies. Which we all do. Is that we're naturally inclined to believe the best about ourselves. And less than the best about God. It's the theologians call it the noetic effect of sin. It affects everything about us, including the way that we think, the way that we believe, the way that we feel. And so our natural inclination then is to believe the best about ourselves. We always give ourselves the benefit of the doubt, don't we? But we don't tend to believe the best about God. Uh, and because of that, it, it affects us. 
It infects the church. And so the leaders, the elders of the church are called to root out unsound doctrine, to sniff out and snuff out bad theology in the church. Now, of course, again, we're called to be gracious people and humble people and kind people. But when it comes to safeguarding a right view about God and his gospel, we're tenacious, uncompromising, even waging war, so to speak. Now, I said to you a few weeks ago, the way that we view God has incredible consequences on really all parts of our lives. The way you think about God's salvation will, will, will color the way you see everything. And let me just give you a few examples. Think about how you handle suffering. I mean, we're, we're all going through something, right? I remember a couple years ago, if you follow basketball, uh, there were a number of guys who were, who were expressing for the first time in, in really, I don't know, NBA history, they were, they were sharing that they were going through some real struggles, some mental illness, some depression. And Kevin Love, who plays for the, the Cavaliers, said, we're all going through something. And, and he wasn't trying to be theological, I don't think, but he's exactly right. We're all going through stuff because we, we live on this fallen earth, this sin-cursed world, so we go through things. We go through relational struggles and we go through battles. We go through ups and downs. We all go through things. And the way that we see God, of course, impacts the way that we handle suffering. For example, most people, when they go through suffering, uh, they either fall into one of two categories. Either I'm mad at God or I'm mad at myself. This is the way it most often works. Either we say, I'm mad at God because, look, God, I've, I've been living for you. I've been trying to live a good life. I've been obeying your commands. Why would you do this to me? And it's sort of, we tend to look at things more from a karma standpoint than through biblical theology. We say, look, I, I've, I've been living a good life. I deserve better than this. So we're mad at God. Or, or we were mad at ourselves because we think, you know, I'm trying so hard to obey God. I'm trying to do what's right, but I keep failing. I keep going back to the same sins. I keep doing the same thing, so God's punishing me. So we're mad at ourselves. But a correct view of God actually rectifies this misunderstanding, this, this poor way of thinking. An understanding of the gospel actually corrects this. On the one hand, the gospel humbles us out of being mad at God when we suffer. The moment we realize that Jesus was perfect and he suffered. Jesus obeyed all of God's commands. And yet he suffered horribly. As soon as we get that, we get this, it destroys the notion that good people should have good lives and bad people get bad lives. And what do you, I know what I've tended to do over, over the years is when someone goes through something really bad, I say, oh, they must, you know, they're not really walking with the Lord. They're not obeying God. Something is, they're, they're, they're caught up in sin or whatever it is. We tend to believe that, that if you're living a good life, you should have, a, you should have uh, good things that happen to you. If you live a bad life, then bad things are going to happen to you. And certainly God disciplines his children. And certainly sometimes God, by his discipline, he does bring on that sort of refining fire. But the reality is just because we're suffering, it doesn't mean that God's mad at us. Just because we're going through things, it doesn't mean that, that God's punishing us. So the gospel prevents us from being mad at God when we suffer. And the gospel prevents us from being mad at ourselves because it reminds us that our acceptance from God comes not from our obedience, but from Christ's obedience. God loves us despite our disobedience if we're in Christ. If you've repented, if you've turned from your sin and you believed on Jesus, then you stand forever loved by God. And so you have a bad day, God loves you. 
You have a good day, God loves you. If you do really, really well, you keep all the rules, it's not as though God says, oh, now I'm just, my love for you has just exploded. And you have a bad day, God says, you know, I'm, I'm taking some of my love back. That's not the way it works. God loves those who are in Christ with this unshakable love. So having a right understanding of God and his salvation, it, it helps us when we suffer. Now, here's another evidence how important it is. Think about the pursuit of happiness. We tend to believe, I think, that we're not happy because we don't have something we really, really want. And I think, and this is, we see this throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, which is a beautiful picture of this. We, we tend to believe, I would be happier if I only had blank. If I only had more money. If I only had a better marriage. If I only had a bigger house. If I only had a better job. I would be happy. And yet, the gospel reminds us that in Christ, God has given us everything we need. Everything we need for joy. Everything we need for contentment. Everything we need for purpose. The pursuit of happiness is, which is really the great search of humanity, seems to be trying to find that elusive thing. And it's going to bring us happiness. And you, even in the last couple of years, we looked at, you can look at a couple of examples. One from sports and one from, uh, from entertainment. Uh, Junior Seau, who's you know, one of the greatest athletes to play, played in the National Football League, the San Diego Chargers, took his own life because he came to the place where he just, he just couldn't find happiness. Then a couple of years ago, just reading this week, uh, something about Robin Williams and the things that keep coming forward. Robin Williams, a guy who made everybody laugh, right? This guy was crazy and zany and his mind working at a hyper speed. And yet, here's a guy who was always looking for happiness and never found it because he's looking for those things outside of Christ looking for happiness in other things. The gospel corrects that faulty thinking. The gospel informs us that in Christ, again, we have everything we need. And if we're not happy, it's not because we need something else. It's because we're looking beyond Jesus for that. We're looking beyond Jesus for joy. We think, if I can just get that something else, I'll be happy instead of actually reveling in all we have in Christ. One final area where I think this, where a miss understanding of God affects us maybe most drastically, and that is in our relationships. If we live out our relationships the way that we're inclined to, the way I'm inclined to, by showing love to people who show me love, by being kind to people who are kind to me, by responding to people the way that they treat me, if we, if we love each other and live with each other in that way, we'll never enjoy intimacy or joy in our relationships. But when our relationships are actually gospel-informed, gospel-saturated, that is, they're modeled after God's love for us in Christ, we understand God loved us when we had nothing to give. We had nothing to give Him that, that, we, that he, we could come to Him and say, God, now you should accept me. God loved us and sent His Son to die for us when we were His enemies. We understand that sort of love, that we have God's love for us in Christ, it's unwavering, then we're free to love others regardless of how they respond to us. So it radically changes our relationship. Again, this, the way that we view God impacts everything. Just about every, just about every anxiety, every fear, every insecurity, every neurosis that we face flows from some misconception about God and his salvation. So we fight in the church and in our own hearts for a right view of God. But how do we fight? So that's what we're fighting for this, for the truth about God, for what's right about God. But how do we fight? Well, look at verse 19 again. Paul says, 
Wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. Holding faith and a good conscience. So how do we fight? Well, Paul says, by holding faith and a good conscience. Now, when the Bible talks about faith, it does so in a variety of ways, but two ways uh, most prominently. Sometimes faith equals the act of believing. So when Jesus, you know, Jesus is walking along and he curses a fig tree and the disciples, this is Mark 11, I believe, and the disciples are really blown away by this. And, and Jesus says, no, have faith, have faith. What he's saying is believe in me, believe in who I say that I am. So a lot of times faith actually equals the act of believing. But sometimes in the scriptures, faith is actually a reference to the content of our belief. In other words, it's, it's not, it's what we believe. It's what we're actually believing in. It's, it's substantive. Faith in that sense represents the content of the teachings that have been handed down by Jesus and the apostles. So sometimes faith is the act of believing and sometimes faith is actually what we're supposed to believe in. That is to say, uh, sound doctrine or the right things about God. For example, in, in Jude's letter, he writes to these Christians, he says, Beloved, contend for the faith. Again, this is the deposit of teaching from the apostles and Jesus that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our Lord into sensuality deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So the faith in that sense is the doctrinal content of the message of the apostles and then passed down generation to generation. This is how Paul instructs Timothy to wage war by holding on to the faith. Here's our second point. Here's, here's the how. We wage spiritual warfare by clinging to God's self-revelation and the sufficiency of his salvation in Jesus. So, you know, we're... we're we're going through stuff, right? Everybody's going through something. How do we wage war? How do we contend for what was handed down? It's by clinging to how God reveals himself to be God's self-revelation and the sufficiency of his salvation. See what these false teachers were doing is they were perverting the gospel. They were misusing the, the law in such a way to say, if you really want to be right with God, you got to do all these things. Keep the festivals and, you know, honor this and obey that. And so that's how you're right with God rather than by faith. And so, Paul tells Timothy to wage war, and he wage, wage war by, by clinging to the way God has revealed himself to be. Just like we have a lot of views of Jesus, a lot of people have differing views of God. Some people see God as this kind of relentless tyrant. You know, he's he just sort of always waiting to put the smack down. Some people see God, I think, as kind of a Santa Claus type figure where, you know, he just exists to give us what we want. And other people have said kind of a divine vending machine. He's kind of up there. He's waiting for us. And the whole reason he exists is to sort of give us what we want. Some people see God as this sort of hyperactive accountant. Right? He's, he's got the ledgers out. He's always putting one check in the good and one in the bad. He's always waiting to say, well, you're a little heavy now on the bad stuff. So how do they live? They live in fear of God. They're worried about what, what, box, what boxes are going to be checked. Some people see God as kind of this sweet old grandfather. You know, he can never tell anybody what to do. He's just there as a shoulder to cry on. He's there if you need him. If you don't need him, just live your life. Well, 
we cling, we wage war against these false views about God by clinging to the way God has revealed himself to be. How do we fight for joy when our spirits are discouraged? You know, sometimes it's a fight for joy, isn't it? Sometimes I got a text from a, a, a fellow pastor who lives in a different state. He said, I said, how are you doing? He just said, I'm fighting for joy. I'm fighting. I don't really feel joyful right now. In fact, I'm really upset. I feel hurt. And I'm dealing with some anger, but I'm fighting for it. How do we fight for joy? By, by reminding ourselves of who God is, who he's revealed himself to be. How do we fight against discouragement? How do we fight against temptation in our lives? Is it not by clinging to the God of the scriptures, by clinging to the way God has revealed himself to be? We hold on to what's true about God, what's true about his salvation. Now, this is not all that Paul instructs. He also charges Timothy in the last part of verse 19 to hold on to faith and a good conscience. I believe that the conscience is one of the most misunderstood concepts in the church, the conscience. Most people believe that they have kind of a Jiminy Cricket idea that you sort of follow your conscience and your conscience will never lead you astray. But do you realize that you can actually follow your conscience and be led into sin? You, you can do something you think is right and you feel is right in your conscience, but it actually wrong, it's actually wrong. You can actually do something that, be doing something that you really believe is wrong when the problem is your conscience is just misinformed. So what is a conscience? Well, a conscience is this. It's your internal conviction of what is right and wrong. And your conscience can be misguided. Your conscience can lead you astray. Your conscience is only as reliable as it's been trained in the scriptures. That's what it is. And I can give you countless examples of, of areas where the conscience, where, where someone has been doing something that, that they thought was wrong because their conscience was, was convicting them when really it wasn't wrong. And, and times when people are doing something they didn't realize was wrong, because their conscience was giving them free reign. And I'll give you three in, in just sort of one minute each. Um, let me start with an area where, you're, where your conscience, you can be persuaded something's wrong and it's not. I had a professor in seminary who, who's, who'd written a lot on God's will and, and even the conscience. And he was, uh, when he was younger, he was in the military and he grew up in a really, really tiny town in Kentucky. I mean, just the smallest town you can imagine, you know, 1,200 people or whatever it was. And and for him, when he was growing up, the place that had the, the pool tables, the billiards, that was where all the bad stuff happened in town. And so when he got older, even after going through the military and, and even in, in his late 20s, whenever he would see a pool table, or especially be in the room with a pool table, he would just become overwhelmed with guilt. Like he thought, I, I shouldn't be here. This is so wrong. I'm sinning against God. And he had to go and, and re, retrain his conscience so that it was consistent. With, there's nothing wrong with a pool table. There's nothing wrong with, with playing billiards, right? There's nothing wrong with that. He had to retrain his conscience. Some of you have heard my, my testimony. Many of you had, have. And um, my first year of marriage, uh, our marriage was almost destroyed because of my insistence on playing sports every day. Golf, tennis, racquetball, basketball. It was mostly basketball. So every night I'm going to the basketball court and I'm, I'm playing basketball for hours 
Sometimes Janine would come up and she would say, hey, can we, we have dinner? And I would just say one more game. And I would say that five or six times in a row. Well, that was almost 25 years ago. There are some times still when I go to the Madison YMCA, and I'm, I'm 47 years old. And I've been married almost 25 years. There are some times still when I play basketball. Janine's glad I'm playing. Yeah, go play basketball. I go play basketball. And when I'm leaving, I still feel guilty. I feel like th that was wrong. I shouldn't be playing basketball. It's because I'm still trying to educate and train my con. There's nothing wrong with playing basketball. There's something wrong with playing basketball every night to the demise of your marriage. That's a bad thing. There's nothing wrong with playing basketball. Let me give you one more on the opposite. I was working with a missionary one time in South Africa. And I'd spent some time with him in, 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 in his ministry. And I was on a board there where we worked with him. And I noticed that he treated people horribly. He treated all the people under him in just this terrible way. And I couldn't believe some of the things that I, what I was seeing, the way, the way that he treated people. And yet his conscience never flared up at all. Because this is the way that he had been treated. He just thought it was right to treat people that way. Your conscience is only as reliable as it's trained and informed by the scriptures. And, and here's what this means is you, you can, again, you can think you're doing something right and it's wrong. You can believe you're doing something wrong and there's actually nothing wrong with it. It has to be trained according to scripture. The Bible describes the conscience in a variety of ways. There's a weak conscience, which is one that hasn't been properly trained according to the scriptures. And this is typically the one who, who feels guilty about things that there's nothing wrong with. There's a seared conscience, which is one that through persistent and unrepentant uh, sin has become uh, desensitized, if you will, to to sin. There's a strong conscience, which is one that's thoroughly educated according to the scriptures. And then a good or a clear conscience is one that is not flaring up because one's actions are consistent with the way one believes. And Paul tells Timothy to hold on to the faith. Again, that deposit of truth handed down from generation and a good conscience. In other words, all he's saying is your actions should be consistent with what you believe. What you do should be consistent with what you believe. So he's not just calling people to believe the right things, but to act accordingly. So we've already established wrong views about God can lead to bad behavior. Uh, but the opposite is also true. Ungodly behavior, that is to say a bad conscience, can lead to wrong views about God or bad doctrine. In fact, John Calvin once wrote, a bad conscience is the mother of all heresies. What he meant was, we're always looking for ways to justify our actions, aren't we? And even our sinful actions. And so if we're doing something that we know we can't justify according to the scriptures, then what we do is we say, yeah, but that passage doesn't really mean what you think it means. Or I don't really believe God that actually, would actually require that of me. So what happens is in order to justify our behavior we began to try to reconstruct who God is and really fashion God into our own image. Two people who are in a sinful relationship, they say, well, yeah, but that really, that, that passage only applies way back then. It doesn't apply now. A man wants to leave his wife or a woman is insistent on disrespecting her husband. Say, well, yeah, but I think God would want me to blank. And I've heard this so many times. Yeah, but I believe God would want me to do whatever it is, even though there's no, there's no indication in Scripture that this is what God would desire. You see what's happening because of a, a bad conscience, 
people are forced to make God into something he isn't. Forced to kind of, again, to refashion God in our own image. Our conscience, when that happens, our conscience is causing us to damage the faith deposit. The way that we act is actually causing us to say something that's untrue about this, this deposit that's been passed down generation to generation. Now, and, this, and that's why it's so important that, again, we, we fight for this right view of God. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, this sounds a little, too, a little too serious to me. I mean, all this stuff about fighting and waging war and all this, I'm not really... I mean, are we making too big of a deal of this? Well, look at, again, the last part of verse 19, verse 20. By rejecting this, which is to say, the faith deposit and a good conscience, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Apparently, there were two prominent uh, men in the church, and uh, Hymenaeus and Alexander, and they were opposing Paul's message. Hymenaeus as it related to eschatology and uh, Alexander as it related to the lordship of Christ. They're actually, they're actually rejecting Paul's message. And the text says they had made a shipwreck of the faith. Now, I don't get it. I'm not using the business of correcting the, uh, the translators, but the ESV here translates it. They had made a shipwreck of their own faith, of their faith. But this is actually better re- read. They had shipwrecked the faith. Tain, pistain, the faith. In other words, they had distorted the faith deposit, the teaching of Jesus and the the, the apostles. And because of their stubbornness and insistence on rejecting sound doctrine, Paul says he's handed these men over to Satan. When you talk about serious, he's handed these men over to Satan. My mom sometimes tells a story of what it was like to grow up with an abusive and alcoholic father. And my grandfather would go out on these binges and he would come back and, and he would just tear, a place, tear apart the house. He would drag kids out of bed and beat them. My mom said that when she would go to bed at night, it was often in terror because she never knew what her dad was gonna, how her dad was going to come home. And there were many times that he would, he would drag her and her sisters out of bed and, just, and beat them in, in a, a drunken stupor for something they had done or hadn't done. And she said sometimes her mom would say to her, when she would get in trouble. You just wait till your dad gets home. I'm handing you over to your dad. And that was the most horrifying thing she could hear. And yet, this is actually worse. This is actually worse. To be handed over to Satan is the worst thing you you can possibly think of. Now, have you ever thought about how this went down practically? I mean, how did this actually work for someone to be handed over to Satan? It's not as though Paul had contact with Satan, right? It's not as though Paul sent him a direct message or IM'd him and said, I've got these people I'm going to put on your list. That's not how it worked. What did it mean practically to be handed over to Satan? Well, very simply, it meant to be removed from the church, to be removed from the protection of the believing community. This is a phrase that refers to church discipline. A person within the body, a member of the local body who resists biblical correction, who insists on teaching false views of God, misleading others by caricatures about God, by saying things, by presenting a view of salvation that is inconsistent with the scriptures, continues unrepentantly, is to be disciplined. First approached by one, then approached by another, then approached by the elders, 
And finally, the culmination of this process is the person is removed from fellowship and handed over to Satan. Not so the person will be destroyed, but broken. So the person will be brought to his or her knees, brought to their spiritual senses as they're removed from the spiritual protection of Christ's body, uh, which is the church. Again, the goal is restoration. One old-time theologian says, since it is in the church that Christ holds the seed of his kingdom, outside the church there's nothing but the dominion of Satan. Thus he who is cut off from the church must necessarily fall for a time under Satan's tyranny till he is returned to Christ, till he returns to Christ and is reconciled to the church. It's not a mean-spirited sort of throwing up of the hands. It's not a ignoring a person. It's not refusing to pray for a person. This is simply an indication of the importance of the purity of the bride of Christ and the safety that we find within the believing community. Here's our final point. There is no more dangerous place to be than outside the care and protection of the church of Jesus Christ. There's no place that's more dangerous than being outside of, apart from, no longer under the protection of, the care of the church of Jesus Christ. These two men, Hymenaeus and Alexander, who were blaspheming the faith, they were misrepresenting God, they were twisting the gospel of grace. Paul hands them over to Satan, that they may hopefully be broken and restored. And when he does so, he realizes this is of the most, this is of utmost gravity and weight. One of the beautiful things about the church is that it's there that God surrounds us with leaders and others who can walk alongside us and encourage us and lift us up and pray and care for us. Hymenaeus and Alexander had swerved from the truth and they suffered from it. They wandered off. We don't know if they ever returned to the faith or restored, but we do know this. What Paul's saying is faith that is, the deposit, the gospel must be held on to. It's not to say that the final completion of our, our salvation rests on us. Of course not. God keeps those who are His. Even so, because of suffering and persecution and opposition, doubters and scoffers at every turn, those who seek to, to diminish God's work, those who, who seek to, to, to enforce upon us this works righteousness, those who destroy God's truth, Holding on to the faith means we have to keep returning to who God is. Keep returning to this story of redemption of which Christ is the hero. Keep returning to the story of God's love for us in Jesus. As we read the scriptures and sit under the ministry of the word, as we come under the leadership of those in the church, we submit ourselves to one another as members of the church, as members of one another we then encounter all the ways that God sovereignly protects His own, provides for their salvation, of course, most acutely in the coming of a true Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And as we do this, this continual intake, being around the believers, being under the ministry of the Word, our faith is strengthened and our knowledge of God is deep. And so we're no longer sort of blown to and fro by all these fads and various false doctrines. Now, here's what's so beautiful about this passage, in my estimation. It has to be considered, and whenever you 
you work your way through a, a book of the Bible, you take a short section, and this is only three verses. But even so, we have to consider this in light of the, the whole picture, the whole letter. And this passage comes right after this beautiful doxology by the, by the Apostle Paul. Paul's song to the God of perfect patience. His song to the God of whose grace overflows to sinners and blasphemers in such a way that even those who are spreading false doctrine can find forgiveness and restoration. Even those whose consciences have been seared, those who have shaken their fists at God, and we know people like this. Maybe this is your story in the past. Maybe this is your story this morning. Those who have wandered away from the church, those who have thought, oh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus and, and so on, but they're not part of the church. They've divorced themselves from the believing community. We know that even those people, there's, there's grace that's, that awaits them. There's a loving and tender God who's eager to receive them. Even those who have shaken their fists at God, even those who have walked away from the church, they find a God who tenderly receives them and pursues them with a word, come home. Come home. This is a right view of God. This is the way God has revealed himself in Scripture. He laughs at those who think they can control him, according to the Psalms. He scoffs at those who plot evil against him. But he welcomes the broken, the beaten down, former runners and rebels. And he says, I haven't gone anywhere. I'm waiting for you. I love you. I want you to return to me. And to his own children who fall prey to this mindset that there's something better out there for them. God remains ever faithful, holding on to his own, drawing them back to himself. Which leads us to one response, I think, and that's gratitude for this grace. Gratitude to this incredible, awesome, all-powerful King who would not allow us to wander away indefinitely, but brought us back to Himself. In just a moment, we're going to sing this song, which I absolutely love. It says, how can I thank you, Lord? You've given me grace that I cannot afford. How could I possibly thank you, Lord? For this grace, this rescuing grace, this saving grace, this pursuing grace. This is the gracious God of the scriptures. And this is the reputation of God that we fight so hard to maintain. Let's pray.